If there's one figure that is most associated with the Reformation, it's got to be Martin Luther. It was his posting of those 95 theses on that door in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, assuming that is not a legend, that put these efforts at reform into, I don't know, fifth gear. But who was he? Was he a champion for good theology or actually kind of a bad guy with a very mixed legacy? How did he change history? And did history specifically require him to do it? Or is he just the right cranky German at the right time? We talk about this on episode four of our season on the Reformers. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor at First Lutheran. We've uh, given Sarah uh, the day off from her usual duty as my co-host on this particular uh, podcast. I I said I'm going to have two uh, old hands here, and I mean old in the best sense of that word, (laughs) Uh, but two uh, retired Lutheran pastors in studio uh, taking advantage of one being in town from New York. Uh, and uh, and another who I've gotten to know recently, and I think we'll we'll be able to cover between the three of us the subject of Martin Luther pretty well. So, uh, but I'm Evan McClanahan, pastor here at First Lutheran in Houston, and uh, FL Houston is where you can find us. But of course, uh, I do want you to go to HoustonTOT.com to learn more about Theology on Tap, what we're up to, what our next events are. Uh, as I've said before, this uh, season on the Reformers is an effort of ours to bring to you, the listener, more content uh, that is, you know, more specific, more researched, more thought about, more uh, sort of systematic. And, and, and in this study of the Reformers, we hope to really, you know, kind of cover, I don't know, about 300 years of church history, but really set the stage for for all the major religious uh, or at least Christian traditions that we encounter. So thanks very much for listening. Um, and let's sort of dive in. I'm, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Richard Johnson, a pastor for 38 years in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, recently retired, and uh, he has a PhD uh, from the Graduate Theological Union out in Berkeley and a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. So uh, you'll be hearing him uh, on a future episode on the Council of Trent. Uh, and Pastor Ralph Hobrochk. Okay. Hobrochk. Yes. All right. Anyway, we just had a long conversation about his name, and it's uh, <laughs> still difficult. Anyway, so so glad to have you, Pastor, at um, uh, at, at P- was it Peace Lutheran? Hope Lutheran in Friendswood. Hope Lutheran Church in Friendswood for 40 years, also recently retired. But um, anyway, so glad to have these these two, uh, two guys, like I said, old hands, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, to sort of guide us as we talk about really the person and, and times and life of, of, of Martin Luther. So uh, let's just set the stage a little bit. Born, if my memory is correct, in 1483, son of a miner, I believe like a copper miner, um, and uh, kind of known to have very strict parents. Hans, I believe, was the name of his father. Correct. Um, and uh, so didn't really kind of grow up in the loving and affirming household that we all want to, you know, have for our children. Seemed to be pretty tough. Uh, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, so y'all, y'all feel free to come back on anything that I'm, I'm missing. But did end up going to law school, wanted to please his father. Um, and really, that's where we find perhaps one of the most important biographical uh, data points in the life of Luther uh, which is that he is caught out in this famous rainstorm. He calls out to St. Anne. St. Anne is not in the Bible. Is that Mary's mother? Is that right? Okay, Mary's mother. Correct. And to, to be saved from this rainstorm. And by the way, he's about a semester away from graduating, I think with honors from law school. So he's doing quite well. Smart young lad. Uh, but uh, he is saved from this rainstorm, and he fulfills his promise that he would go to become a monk. So that is how Luther becomes a monk, and he becomes, he strives to be a great monk, the best monk who ever lived. And it's during that time, eventually, over, over you know, many years, that he sort of, through a, a series of fits and starts, what we would say is it rediscovers the gospel. Um, but what kind of a guy was was Luther, you know, especially in these younger years, uh, either in his time in the monastery or his time in law school? Um, when y'all think about Luther, what what are kind of some of his personality characteristics that sort of jump out? Well, I think he's uh, 
uh, I mean, the first word that comes to my mind is prolific. I mean, the mm. guy had lots to say, and mm. he was very articulate and um, uh, thoughtful and um, in, in some respect, respects brilliant, and yet at the same time, very down to earth, mm. you know, very... Um, uh, you know, showed showed his sort of middle to lower class background and his ability to uh, use uh, earthy images, some of which are a little embarrassing uh, today uh, to us. Um, uh, he was uh, a man of um, uh, great uh, f- um, introspection in the sense that he 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 really tried to understand his own heart and could see what was in it and was appalled by what he saw and yet discovered uh, the grace of of God in a way that uh, set him free from uh, that that kind of um self uh I don't want to say self-loathing but that kind of guilt and 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 shame that uh, enabled him then to want to share that discovery mm-hmm. with with everyone else that's yeah. those are just some Impressions, yeah. Ralph, what do you th- uh, what do you think? I always try to put uh, Martin Luther in in the milieu in which which he grew up. Uh, it was a time of of sorcery and uh, witchcraft, mm. superstition, superstitions, <clears throat> superstitions all over the place. So when he got caught in that rainstorm that that you talked about earlier, those those kinds of backgrounds kick in for him. But there are other kinds of things that, that make Luther, uh, in the time he lived, kind of special. Um, some 20 years or so before he was born, this guy by the name of Gutenberg invented movable type, which is going to be absolutely necessary for the Reformation to take place at all. Uh, it's also a time of discovery. You know, 10 years after Luther was born, Columbus found this new place. Hmm. So that was going on. The world of science was changing. Copernicus and, and Galileo were, were in there, you know, Copernicus especially giving us the Copernicus system, you know, geocentric, geos, I mean, uh, uh, heliocentric, heliostatic hmm. uh, solar system or universe, as he would call it. So there, there's all kinds of changes going on. Uh, the Renaissance, uh, the rediscovery of, of the classics, which which for Luther was was really important because he was a man of languages. He could probably speak Latin as well as he could speak German, and and Hebrew was really his his major forte. He he understood he was really a, a, a great Hebrew scholar. Yeah, but he was also uh, come. He also came from a family that was religious, and in the church of his day, you know, guilt and works were were particularly important, and so. He fell right into that. That was his background. That was his understanding of how the world worked, that God was was a wrath, wrathful, vengeful God. And, and if you didn't placate him by the way you lived your life, then you're going to spend eternity in hell. And, and that, was a, that was a driving passion of his that we're going to see in, in early Luther as, as, as he enters the monastery. Uh, I, I love, I love the, the whole story about... Uh, Staupitz, his his father confessor. Uh, one of the reasons Luther probably got into the the priesthood was because Staupitz was tired of listening to Luther hmm. confess five hours a day. Hmm. He said, "Luther, you need to go do something else besides sit in my 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 cell here and and confess all your sins because because Luther was trying to get rid of all that stuff so he didn't spend eternity in hell." Uh, so that that was kind of the background of of a young man who, who was brilliant. You know, you know, you talked about brilliant, um, in my library in, in, in my office, past office, you know, 40 volumes. And that's with no word processor. Think about that. Mm-hmm. 40 volumes of stuff that he wrote. Yeah. Mercy. Uh, just, just a, a brilliant Renaissance guy who had a quick mind, uh, a sharp tongue as well. Yeah. But but just deep 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 into 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 scholarship and especially the Word of God, which is yeah. where hopefully we'll 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 springboard off of that whole yeah. Word of God here in a little bit. Well, there there have been uh, a few efforts to uh, <clears throat> place him in a psychiatric 
you know, couch and kind of kind of go, what, what was wrong with this guy? Uh, which, as you know, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, only only the psychiatrist in the same room as the, you know, the uh, the patient is supposed to uh, diagnose people, much less 500 years later. But um, people have suggested, you know, that that kind of compulsive need to confess every little sin, you know, it it may have been that he did struggle with a. Uh, I don't know, a psychological, you know, sort of disposition, but it was a product of the time. In fact, uh, R.C. Sproul, for whatever we may think of, of, uh, of our Calvinist friend, uh, but he talks about how um, it was kind of, you know, Luther was actually doing what the church actually required, right? Because Correct. the theology of the time did require the confession of every sin, and then this process of penance and then absolution you know luther did not want to die with sins on his mind um the problem seems to be that the deeper he 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 you know delves into the you know the core of his mind and heart and soul he he keeps finding more sin you know it's like cleaning out the closet and you know but it's like an infinite closet you know and there's a constant mess there or something so um no one else seemed to have that problem i mean he seemed to be the only guy um, so he is, but he is, if nothing else, I would say, um, I, you know, he pays attention to detail. He's very concerned about his salvation. Um, he wants to do things right. I don't know if that was because his father was really strict and his mother was, I think actually even more strict, but he seems to have a profound fear of disappointing God and disappointing his father. Is that, is that fair to say, you know, 500 or so years later? I mean... Yeah. Well, Eric Erickson thinks so, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and his father was the, really disappointed that he wasn't going to become an attorney. Yeah. That was that was that was a bad thing. In fact, he had to be coaxed to come to his ordination into priesthood. He didn't even really want to do that. Yeah. Because yeah. he was so disappointed that he had spent all all these glutens to to get Luther <laughs> educated at at Erfurt and and then for naught. And to be a, a monk, about a if if my my memory is correct and this data is correct, it may be hard to say, but about a quarter of the population was monastic at this time. It was a you know a common way of life. Um, it was seen as kind of you know I mean I can understand why a parent wouldn't want that for their child. Um, and to become a priest wasn't any great honor. I don't I don't believe so. To be a lawyer maybe would have brought the prospect of more notoriety and more money for sure so um i guess his father eventually came to peace with it but wasn't happy with it um luther talks about how he sought to be the greatest you know, what what he something something like uh i sought to excel at monkery more than any other monk or something to that effect right so uh but maybe let's talk about when did some 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 wheels kind of start to turn the other way when did when did he kind of say to himself, hey, maybe I need to rethink some of this stuff? I mean, uh, what what were those aha moments where he kind of said, hmm, um, something doesn't seem right here? Well, I think it's in his, his study of, of the New Testament, you yeah. know, that's, and particularly the Book of Romans. Uh, and, and he... Uh, comes to this understanding of of um, what justification really is, and and that this is the work of of God, and and not the work of of the human being. And it's like a light, a, a light goes on for him. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about what he would have understood justification to be then before that. Like, what did the church really? teach about you know what what did the church how did what did, what was the process the church sort of laid out for a person to avoid god's judgment to put it simply uh the sacrament of penance uh, was you know key to it and this was uh we talk about the penitential system which is really um 
something, an approach that grew during the whole medieval period. I mean, if you go back and look at the at medieval manuscripts for confessors, you see this very elaborate uh, system of, um, well, if a penitent comes to you with this sin, this is what you say and what you do. And, you know, mm. whole classifications, you know, 15 different varieties of lust. And, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, whatever. I'm, okay. I don't remember the numbers precisely, yeah, 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 but, but, but all all of this very complicated stuff, and it was quite legalistic. Um, mm. uh, and so, of course, Luther, um, you know, tapped right into that in his younger days because he was a lawyer, right, studying to be a lawyer. So this all made sense to him. It was all uh, part of the the same thing. And the idea was, you know, you must confess all of these sins, and you must have absolution, do penance, have absolution, and um, do it again and again and again. You know, um, uh, sin, repent, confess, repeat. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be to be made right by God, which is justification, was the sole responsibility of the church. The church dispensed justification. And the way they did it is through this, this penitential system. So if, if the church is, is responsible for your salvation, because they are the, the dispensers of justification, then they can get away with all the kinds of things that they did. When Luther discovered uh, in his study of Romans, as he's, as he's working uh, in the priesthood, all of a sudden, he discovers that God dispense, dispenses justification and not the church. Oh, hmm. and that, that, that's the aha, I think, that, that started this whole process, that we are justified by God and not by the church. And we're justified not by what we do to placate him, but by grace alone. Hmm. And when that light bulb went off for him, then it was a dismantling of everything that he had known up to that point. Yeah. And it, then it began really to make sense. And that's when he became a, even more voracious in, in the word of God, trying to discover all of this stuff. And he discovered it every place he looked. Um, yeah. And I think most people, they talk about like a tower experience where he's, I'm 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 sure it's kind of been romanticized, but the idea is that he's studying Romans and he reads Romans one seventeen, which is really about Abraham. But I think it, I think the text is, you know, the righteous shall live by faith, and so that the the if we had to simplify it, oversimplify it, but kind of put two things in contrast, it would be, huh? One can be declared righteous through faith, as Abraham was. And then there is this institutional process by which one can finally become, you know, said to be declared righteous. And so he seemed to be a man on a, you know, f not frantic, but, you know, very serious quest for t righteousness, to be declared righteous before a holy God, which he greatly feared, which he was taught to fear, and as we should fear. Um, but, he, but he had no relief. And so it's this, this concept of a faith that would eventually free him from that. And maybe just to try to tie a thread together, you know, for again, for kind of the audience, which is that how did the church find itself in the position to be the sole grantor of forgiveness? And in 1517, uh, it was written about 80 years before, but it wasn't until 1517 that the, the work that lays out the donation of Constantine and other forgeries as forgeries, that was finally published. And so that didn't influence Luther yet. But it was these forged documents that really said, for example, Constantine hands over all his authority to Sylvester, uh, the Pope at the time, and, you know, 313. Um, and so the church ends up being the, ha having the sole discretion of declaring, it really comes back to the office of the keys as well, you know, because right. Christ says to Peter, and later the apostles, you know, the right to forgive and retain sin, that's called the power of the keys. And so Rome sort of takes that all and puts it all in the hands of the Pope, and it kind of filters down through the priesthood. And so that's something that eventually the Lutherans, I think, would want to say is, well, yes, I mean, the church does have, I mean, none of us are anti-clericalists here. You know, the church does have rightful authority. We don't want to take all of that away from the institution. And we don't want to just put a guy under a tree with his Bible either. 
you know, and just have this personal relationship with Christ apart from the church. And yet, the church did have this institutional power and really kind of a threat over hanging over everyone's head. And so when, when Romans 117 is brought to the fore, that's, that's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, let's talk about, uh, the 95 theses a little bit, you know, we're, we're kind of jumping around and we can go back in time a little bit too, but, uh, and I, I joked in the, the introduction that maybe this was a legend. There are people who think this moment never really happened of the posting of these 95 statements or theses on the door to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, but there was maybe some bulletin board or something or else, maybe not the door itself, but anyway, they were, they were, they were posted. That's beyond dispute. And they were later translated from Latin into Germany. And they did kind of spread like wildfire. But the first of these theses reads something like, when Jesus Christ says to a man, repent, he meant that the whole of his life would be one of repentance. And what Luther seems to be doing there is actually striking a blow at the penitential system, which said, do penance. Um, and so there's this like Latin and Greek thing going on where, um, where the, the Latin understanding of the word metanoia, the Greek word metanoia is do penance. And so the Catholic church grabs onto that and says, aha, see, this is the, this is the heartbeat of the sacramental system right here. The sacrament of penance, you have to do penance before you can be forgiven. And Luther ultimately is going to argue that, well, actually, Metanoia, repentance, is about the turning of one's whole life, not a systematic process. Uh, is that a is that overstating things or? No, I think that's uh, that's that's fair, and and I think that uh, that that first thesis is is really uh, first of the ninety five is is really key to understanding Luther uh, because w- what he's saying is that that repentance or penitence or even penance i mean whatever word you want to use is is really uh the the mission of one's entire life i mm. mean it's the purpose of one's entire life it's not um a moment when you're you know uh, at confession or um a moment in church it's 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 part of one's whole life and we live as he'll later flesh this out, you know, it's a, a constant returning to baptism. Hmm. It's a constant returning to the the grace of God that we receive in in baptism. Yeah, and it's not superstitious either. You know, we're kind of that seems to be kind of now we're getting away from this these magical acts or whatever so called. You know, um, but yeah, any thoughts on that it, that famous moment or yeah, you know, metanoia. Uh, to get a new mind is not just to go through the rubrics of some penance uh, right, but to get a new mind, a new heart, a new way of living, to turn around and do things differently. I think that that's an important, important uh, area to remember that, that Luther was talking about that, not just going through the rites, but being a new person and, mm-hmm. what, and what, that, what that entailed. I've always liked the way J.B. Phillips uh, translates that, change your heart and mind. Mm. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, so we think of the 95 Theses as kind of starting it all. He was not a Lutheran yet, if you will. <laughs> you know, uh, this was, there were still many more dominoes to fall. Uh, and, and as has been said, this was a kind of an invitation to debate, uh, my memory is that he he actually had written, I think, 97 or 98 or 99 theses on scholasticism a couple of weeks before. Correct. And he was hoping to really get, I mean, he really thought that's the thing that would, you know, really get people burned up. Scholasticism ended up being this kind of almost insanely, I mean, it's, it's the, the highlight is, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? It's like this almost like insane theological, you know, delving into kind of the nature of everything. And um, I think he sees it ultimately as detached from the lived experience of most Christians. Um, so he wasn't this huge kind of fan, I think it's safe to say, of the schoolmen of scholasticism. But no one really cared about that. But this whole deal about the indulgences, well, about, about, about you know, repentance, and ultimately me about this particular indulgence that was funding St. Peter's Basilica that really kind of offended him, Turns out it offended other people too, 
and it does spread, and he does become quite, you know, at least better known as a result of this. And so he starts writing more, right? If it worked the first time, he writes more. So what are some of the, let's say between 1517 and 1521, what are some of the other sort of dominoes to fall? I mean, he's taking a pretty big shot here at, you know, indulgences, really, which kind of gets to purgatory because you buy indulgences to get out of purgatory, what are some of the other doctrines that now start to come into this view of, of things that maybe we need to rethink? I, I think an important uh, doctrine that came to the forefront is that the only source and norm for faith and life is not the church, but the Word of God. Hmm. Um, that, to me, that that's part of the forefront of, of that part of Luther's life to say, it doesn't depend upon the doctrines of the church. What does the Word of God have to say about sin and grace and repentance? Those kinds of things. I mm. think that that's an important portion of of, of, of his maturation there. Uh, that that scripture were scriptures were that important because there we find the solace that mm. we need, and it's not going to be in the doctrines of the church. Yeah. Is this when he writes? Uh... The bondage of the will, or is that later? I think that's a little bit later. Okay. Tad later, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. But by the time he's excommunicated in 1521, and there's this famous papal bull issued that excommunicates him, and he kind of famously burns it in a in a bonfire or something in front of everybody, you know, he he must not think very much of the Pope at that point. So he seems well, to he, be— he had been to Rome. He yeah. saw it, and he said no. Yeah. Was that in 1510? I think I think that was soon after he, he soon after he became a priest, I believe. Okay, so I think yeah. it, I think it may have been fifteen ten, and yeah, he sees the people going up the steps, and you know, indulge, and 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 he he seems to see a lot of uh, well, whoring around uh, by the priests and people paying for these special mass that masses that are right. said in totally perfunctory fashion, um, and. Uh, you know, pilgrimages themselves were a way of, of getting out of purgatory sooner. So the, the, these long trips that people would make as kind of sacrificial trips or going up the steps that Christ was tried on uh, that, that I guess were moved from Jerusalem to, to Rome. I don't know how if those are truly those steps or not. I think, are they still around somewhere? I don't know. Maybe they're inside the Vatican now. But, you know, these these were all things that would get you out of heaven and so yeah he was thoroughly disgusted by out what he saw in Rome yeah out, out of out of hell thank you yeah um old-fashioned sin gets you out of yeah. heaven uh, anyway but but uh but um well okay so he's he, he he's continuing to launch kind of bromides uh in these years and then comes his famous here I stand moment uh he's got a collection of writings uh on his trial and uh this is uh uh, where where was this trial? I'm blanking. Worms. Uh, yes, of course, the Diet of Worms. Okay, and um, and so he's he's there, and they say, you know, really, you're you're cutting at papal authority here. You're you're under you're you're cutting into the whole system. And I would say this was kind of a house of cards in a way. I mean, what he had once he had kind of once he kind of took a bite of the apple on say repentance. The penitential system as a whole, you end up saying, "Well, by what authority uh, did the was the system sort of initiated to begin with?" You know, does the church really have this authority? Is the church more powerful than Christ Himself? You know, and all these these things these are kind of the dominoes that then start to fall. Um, Charles V, who we'll talk about more in the Council of Trent episode. But he is there, right? He is at the trial, is it? He is. Yes. Okay. But he, he's he's also Spanish, so he doesn't understand a lot of Latin and a lot of German. So. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, the, what are they trying to resolve at the trial, I guess would be my question. Well, I'm not sure they're trying to resolve anything. They're trying to smack Luther down and get him to say okay. I was wrong. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They want a recantation. Yeah. Yeah. And there are these immortal words, which, again, some people have said are legendary, but it essentially he says it's neither safe nor wise to, you know, go back on what I've written because I believe what I've written to be in accord with the scriptures. And that takes us right back to the trials, really, of, of Jan Hus in particular, but even of, of Wycliffe, where 
you know, the church is saying, we have decided this is what the scripture says. And Huss and Luther are saying, well, I, I think this is what the scripture says. And it's almost like the church says, well, we don't care what you think. It doesn't matter what you think <laughs> uh, the scripture says, because we are the ones with the authority. And so all of these things ultimately are, I would argue, are authority disputes, authority debates. Um, and that's kind of how he ends up, uh, you know, uh, being being essentially convicted of wrong teaching, you know, leaving that. But what happens next? Because of the papal bull, he he was uh, open to uh, seizure uh, and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Huss is an example of that. You get you get caught by the wrong guys, you wind up dead. Uh, so sequestered in uh, the Wartburg, thanks to his elector, uh, a place of safety, uh, even though he, he did venture out every once in a while uh, disguised as a knight. But the interesting thing about that, uh, at that diet, he said, unless you can convince me with, with plain sound reasoning and the word of God, mm. you know, here I stand on what I said. It's interesting that when he's talking about that word of God, that's most likely uh, in Latin. Mm. So uh, while he has some time being hidden uh, by John in the Wartburg, he begins his translation uh, of the scripture from Greek and Hebrew into German, mm. which, by the way, just as a side note, uh, his translation of, of the scripture, so fluent in German, is kind of the basis of Hochdeutsch, the, the high German today, mm. because that's the way he translated the, mm. the scripture. By the way, he started there. It didn't finish until he was almost dead. There mm. were a number of emanations of, of his going back and, and, and tightening up those mm-hmm. German translations of both the Hebrew and the Greek. Yeah, and he, he was... Better at Greek than Hebrew, but he did get – my understanding is that in that 20-month period or so, he did get a fair amount of the New Testament done. I mean, what else was he going to do? Yeah. You know, he was sitting in a little tiny little room. and You, you can go to the Vortberg Castle Day in Eisenach. Interestingly, it's mostly known for uh, – uh, is it St. Catherine? I, I can't remember the – or Elizabeth, Elizabeth of Hungary, uh, or uh, Elizabeth of Thuringia. That's really a destination site for her because it was her castle, and she was a saint already uh, by the time uh, Luther ends up there. But the uh, whale vertebra that was used as his footstool uh, was was in there when I when we, we were able to travel there yeah. several years ago. So. Still there, yeah. We, we were there. We were there about uh, six or seven years ago. Yeah. Um, we talk about this in the Anabaptist episode, and again, I know that because I've already recorded it. But while Luther's away. Uh, so that, again, 1521, he's tried, he's found guilty, but he's, he is sequestered away. He is sort of kidnapped, really, by Frederick the Wise. Should be noted, by the way, that Frederick the Wise had like the largest reliquary, I mean, anywhere around. A reliquary is a collection of relics, and relics were another one of those things, like indulgences or pilgrimages, that if you spent time in front of and praying and whatever and paid to go see, you could get some years knocked out of purgatory. So when he talked about an era of superstition— you know, I, I think it was pretty deep within the church as well, you know, what we would call superstition. But uh, what's going on back in Wittenberg? He, he seems to have some, uh, was it Karlstadt who yeah, yeah kind of t- takes over in Luther's absence? And, you know, what were the issues there? Yeah, well, Karlstadt was a, a much more radical reformer and, um, you know, was doing things like, uh, you know, doing away with vestments and all kinds of um, much more radical things than than what Luther was advocating. And uh, uh, both in terms of uh, kind of stylistic things, he was a he was a much more aggressive kind of mm-hmm. uh, guy and um, really going going down paths that Luther had no desire to go. Um, so Luther's yeah. kind of ticked. Yeah. 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 Luther, there is this concept that Luther did want to reform the church still. I mean, that's what they're called the reformers. I mean, he, he, he had some really harsh words for the Pope and, 
you know, he would speak in, 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 like you said, pretty crass language. But you, there was still a, a hope that for a time, things could change. I don't know how long he held on to that hope, maybe until 1530 when the, eventually the Augsburg Declaration is signed uh, by a number of, I don't know if it was princes or, or who, who exactly signs that, but local nobility. But uh, until that point, I think there was some hope that things could change, but the Catholic Church seems pretty uninterested. Um, well, he does end up, let's talk about, for example, the, the bondage of the will, which is, I think, considered one of the more um, paramount, uh, more significant of his writings. It was a debate with Erasmus, a Catholic humanist who did have his criticisms of the Catholic Church, but ultimately stays Roman Catholic. And uh, he wrote something called The Freedom of the Will. So what are they talking about? Uh, what, what's, what's the heart of that particular issue? Well, the heart of it is whether or not the human being, the human will, is capable of um, obeying God's law and doing what, what God wants. And, yeah. and Erasmus wants to argue that, you know, we have free will and we, we have the ability to follow God's law or not. And Luther wants to say, no, the human will is so corrupt that um, we really don't. With, without God's grace, we, we, are not, we, we can't possibly do this. Mm. Um, uh, the way I sometimes explain this is that, you know, we, we, we feel like we have the, the free will to do this, but our will is so corrupted mm. that we're deluded about the freedom that, that yeah. we have. Yeah, and that becomes a pretty big difference in understanding, you know, people, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can see how it lead to very different religious customs and traditions and practices. Um, <clears throat> you know, I guess Luther and later Calvin as well, because he would certainly adopt a, you know, a similar understanding of man's corrupted will and man's bondage uh, of his will. Uh, I guess you could see that as pretty pessimistic, you know, and, you know, well, God, you people aren't capable of anything. But uh, the reality is, if you're justified by, that's the necessity of grace, right? And yet God saves us in spite of what we're able or not able to do. Um, So that would be one of those kind of landmark, uh, landmark works. Yeah, and it is pessimistic. I mean, Lutheranism has a very uh, pessimistic view of human nature. Yeah. uh, I, I would say it's a realistic view, but then well, I'm a not only that, we confess, yeah. we confess it every Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm by nature sinful and unclean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, we say in our hymnal, the Lutheran Book of Worship, it says we confess that we are in bondage to sin. And it, it, I will say there are some Lutherans that say, you know, that really isn't appropriate language because now we are free in Christ. So there's still an ongoing debate, I think. Uh, that is is difficult to resolve about you know the way that we are free in Christ we have been freed we have been justified and yet we still sin so we and we still we seem to be unable to break from that so. yeah well that's of course one of you know Luther's great gifts is that he has a very healthy um, uh, embracing of paradox and mm. um, you know we are simul justus et peccator at the same time we are both justified and mm. sinner you know. Uh, so that um, we, how can that be? Well, it's a paradox. It's yeah. a mystery. You know? Yeah. It's, it's it's the tension in which we live. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another issue that he would differ with other reformers, which is the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've talked in previous episodes about transubstantiation. Wycliffe. Uh, Transubstantiation, by the way, wasn't really dog, dogmatized till 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council. It had kind of been around as this idea for a couple of hundred years before that. I think ultimately we would argue that we hold the, the same position the church more or less held for a thousand years. That might be oversimplifying or romanticizing. but We, uh, we as in Lutherans. We as in Lutherans, yes. Okay. Yes, thank you. Uh, you know, which, which is that uh, at the Lord's Supper you have bread and wine. And uh, the the priest or the pastor consecrates the elements by saying the words of institution, and those elements uh, remain bread and wine, and yet Christ is bodily present in, with and under those 
those elements of bread and wine. Transubstantiation essentially argues the substances are transformed and they're no longer bread and wine. They only have those appearances, but they are the body and blood of Christ only. And then you had other reformers like Zwingli and later Calvin, although different from Zwingli. They argue that these are representations of the body and blood of Christ, or they're symbolic only. Um, and so talk about that conflict a little bit between Luther and Zwingli and, and why kind of Lutherans end up being so stubborn on this particular issue. I don't know, Ralph, if that's something that you it, have studied. Or... That's one of the things. You know, Luther Luther found out when he met Zwingli person to person that, that he kind of liked the guy mm. and that they agreed on about 90% of, of their theology until it came to this whole business of, of what happens in the Lord's Supper, in, in Holy Communion, in the Eucharist. Uh, Zwingli was part of the Radical Reformation. Uh, they threw out a bunch of stuff, the Mass, everything, and including, well, they started with kind of a blank sheet of paper and came up with, with their own theology. And when it came to communion, it didn't make any empirical sense that anything happened here. So it's a, it's a spiritual representation. We spiritually take in Christ uh, in Holy Communion and not have a real presence. And Luther wasn't about to stomach that. Uh, that's one of the reasons that he divided, uh, walked away from Swingley because of this understanding, not a Roman Catholic understanding of transubstantiation, you know, where, where the accidents stays the same, but the substance changes. So, um, but Luther said, in the eating and drinking, the very body and blood of Jesus Christ are present in, with, and under this bread and wine. Uh, and Swingley wasn't about to do that because it didn't make any empirical sense to him. So it was a, a really yeah. a, a split where the, t those two reformers could have come closer together to lead a unified front. It would really split them apart because of this whole understanding of real presence. So basically, it's all Zwingli's fault. Yeah. Uh, what's all Zwingli's fault? Yeah, yeah I know, I know. <laughs> Everything that happened after, obviously. No, no, yeah. no. I, I, Zwingli I was that. wrong. Let's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've always my take has always been that Zwingli had a a, a a too rationalistic approach to this whole thing. You know, you're you're talking about supernatural things, and therefore the category of them is is going to be in a supernatural category. So you can't bring sort of scientific, the scientific enterprise only, you know, reason only to this, this question of what really is going on at the Lord's Supper. But at the end of the day, Luther's argument was, uh, although this is an English translation from other languages, you know, the Greek is what we have in the New Testament, but Jesus likely spoke Aramaic, uh, but this is my body, uh, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we take those as that's where we're pretty literal, you know, pretty literalist on this sort of thing. Yep. And that has always distinguished Lutherans. I mean, you talk if there is if there is one legacy of Lutheranism, it probably is something like that, because when you when you look at kind of the whole of the West and, you know, where where we all ended up traveling and we, we ended up in America and, you know, what kind of separates us? I mean, when you kind of boil it down, you know, you kind of have these Lutherans who are kind of on this third way here of of real presence, this kind of supernatural understanding of Christ being present in the bread and wine and, you know, word and, and, and baptism as well, but specifically here in this, in these elements. And most other Protestants are far more symbolic and have a lower view of the Lord's Supper, therefore a less sacramental understanding of the church, therefore a less, I would argue, objective relationship to the church and more ex becomes more about experience and more about your what you're up to and what you're doing and you know maybe your emotional state of being and all these sorts of things all that is sort of lost when you lose this objectivity of the sacraments but we don't just have the the rank if you will institutionalism of the catholic church which seemed to use this as yet another sacrament along with penance and other sacraments as a sort of way to say, hey, are you in a good standing with the church? You know, you need to be up to date with your sacraments. It's like getting your booster shot or something, you know. Um, and that's where Lutherans kind of find themselves. We we believe in this, you know, this objective presence of Christ in these things. We think that's what he said. We take those words simply. And we also, though, have a, a living and true and robust 
you know, uh, relationship with Christ, and we don't want to diminish that in any way. And so we are in the Protestant world, and or the evangelical world, and we are in the sort of lower C Catholic world, you know, connected to traditions past and so forth. And um, in that way, I think we we do kind of end up odd ducks a little bit. So <clears throat> maybe that explains why you guys are so weird. I don't know, maybe, but no, I'm so. I kid, I kid. <laughs> Probably some other reasons too, but yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've, I've always thought that the uh, 20th century Roman Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor um, ha- had the best, uh, you know, Lutheran explanation mm. of of the sacrament. She said, if it's just a symbol, the hell with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom way, in that. One way sure. to put it. Yeah. Um, maybe a small thing, maybe a big thing. Luther, Luther gets married. Um, you do have this institution of the celibacy, the priesthood for, for many, many, many centuries, even though Peter himself was married and had a mother-in-law and the scriptures tell us, but, um, uh, but Luther does, uh, there's kind of a romantic story of Katie von Bora herself being, you know, rescued kind of from a convent in a fish barrel or something. Right. And she ends up in, in Wittenberg and she holds out for Luther, who uh, seems to say, I, I see these other guys getting married, but I'm, it's not for me. I'm not going to get married. And he's maybe in his mid-30s at this point. Anyway, they, they get married. They have many children. Um, they're... This is a, you know, not a small thing, because I think that they are, they are saying that one can be a minister in the Church of Christ. And now they're, 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 they're saying now what they're actually saying, if you kind of peel back these layers, is that one can be a servant of Christ in the Church of Christ apart from your ordaining it that is the roman catholic institutional or ordination ordination of these things we can reimagine the ministry um so any thoughts on how you know sort of a lutheran understanding of ministry whether ordination laying on of hands you know that what the what the what the orders ought to be what the pastor should be up to in his daily, you know, life and vocation, what what things he should emphasize. How does ministry kind of change when the Lutheran movement gets a hold of it? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think, that, you know, the what people would jump to immediately would be um, marriage and all that that represents, you know, so that the the clergyman is... is um, uh, n- not separate from the world in the same way that was c- what was the conception in Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the pastor um, has a wife and kids and, you know, household budget and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I, th- I think that's the obvious thing. I think if you push beyond that, you um, you find... Lutherans all over the place mm. on it. You know, I, I think that there's a sense um, classically in Lutheranism that the pastoral office is a really significant and important uh, thing. I think you find uh, in contemporary Lutheranism a much, a much more um, sort of laid back view of um at least among some Lutherans ministry as, you know, just kind of a, profession or a, mm. a career and less of a, a sense of the office. Um, I think we've really, at least in some uh, segments of Lutheranism, have really lost that sense of the of the pastoral office. Um, but uh, part of the problem is that I, I, I think Lutherans have never done a very good job of um, of being clear about what that office is about. And so we've We've allowed for multiple interpretations that kind of undermine um, any any unity in mm. in what our thinking is. Maybe that's less true, um, Ralph, in in the Missouri Senate. I don't know why, but I think uh, across the across the broader spectrum of of Lutherans, there's just um, a, a pretty diffuse sense of of what this office is and yeah. what it means. Yeah. The- I think I think the sense of vocation, uh, at least in in our synod, is becoming watered down as well. Um, as a matter of attire, 
You know, when when I went to the office every day, I had a suit and collar on. Every day, every day. And and I look at some of my contemporaries now, and they don't even wear one on Sunday morning. And to me, I think that's a little bit of showing how the vocation, the sense of the vocation, and 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 the respect for the office has changed a bit, just in, mm. in attire. Mm. Yeah. And maybe part of the root of this, uh, I mean, to get back to Luther himself, of course, uh, we haven't talked about this as a component of Lutheran's theolo- Luther's theology, but he had a very ro- robust sense of of vocation, mm. you know. And for him, I mean, in the medieval church, a religious vocation was, you know, the priesthood or or a monastic uh, vocation. And Luther said, no, every Christian has a vocation. Every right. Christian has a calling. So, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a pig farmer, yeah, that's your vocation and that's a calling from God, which was um, a, a wonderful reimagination of what uh, vocation means, and it was a, a correct uh, view, in, mm-hmm. uh, I think, of what vocation means. But on the other hand, it did have uh, the tendency to undermine the uniqueness of the pastoral office, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because suddenly uh, the, the the vocation of a pastor is. Uh, Luther wants to say it's it's no better than the vocation of a pig farmer, but this be, begins to be understood as it's no different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly, the doctrine of vocation, the elevating of the ordinary man, if you will, um, and woman uh, as as doing God's work in their daily work was a yeah that was a real benefit because essentially to be a priest was to be kind of to be better than other people for sure. I mean, that was, that was, that was de rigueur. Um, well, uh, we're, we're, we're actually kind of running, running a little bit long, but that's okay. What are some of the other main issues? We, we haven't gotten to the biography. He did. I, I will, let me just say this. Uh, Luther is often thought of as pretty harsh and he definitely used a lot of, you know, very colorful language, but if you actually read the guy, he's, he, he can be very tender and very loving towards his congregation and his sermons he lost a daughter who I think was yeah. 12 or 13 years old, yeah. and he's just completely heartbroken by that. He really did suffer from very significant uh, seasons of depression. Uh, and, and and physical pain, too. Physical pain. You he know, was in terrible kidney health. Kidney stones, yeah. probably. Yeah. So he um, he did suffer, I would say, quite a bit. I, I think that, you know, I mean, in many respects, I mean, all the guns of Europe at one point were, were really pointed at him. And uh, he did have some protection locally but i think he he really had to kind of do battle you know for much of his life the small catechism itself which is a kind of basic explanation of christianity that he wrote for fathers to teach to their children in their household uh the introduction to that everyone should read that basically he he goes out into the countryside and says people are living like pigs you know so even after the reformation people have the now access to the gospel and yet you don't see amendment of life you don't see great improvements among the people. So, um, but uh, toward the, let, let's talk about one, maybe the most controversial aspect of his life, which is toward the end of his life, he said some terrible things about the Jews. Uh, the, uh, I think um, on the Jews and their lies, I believe was the name of the pamphlet. And it was written in 1543. He dies in 1546. Uh, people do point out, well, boy, he was probably in a really bad mood. Things were not going well. But is there something we need to know about that? Con- and by the way, every significant Lutheran body in the world has apologized for that. Um, it, it, you know, did it lead to the Holocaust? People kind of indicate that. Well, the Nazis probably later found it and attribute, you know, kind of gave justification. But they were already anti-Semitic long before that. So I think generally speaking, most – I think it's safe to say some of that is overblown. But it definitely didn't help. Um, but is there any any kind of thoughts on that on that document and kind of the legacy of Luther? Well, he screwed up. I mean, he yeah. he was wrong. He was a man of his age. Yeah, you know, um, uh, which uh, does not excuse, but it helps to explain and understand. And I think, as you say, subsequent Lutheran bodies in the twentieth and twenty first century have all repudiated what what. Luther said. So, yeah. um, I, I think we have to 
we have to take Luther warts and all, and and that doesn't mean that everything that he wrote is um, wrote or said is uh, embraced by Lutherans today or should be. Uh, yeah. but much of it is, you know, it's the same. It's the same thing we deal with in every other context. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a great political theorist who ha- had slaves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We and and we uh, we we lament that. Uh, and uh, rejoice in the good contribution that that he made. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, not to not to justify the old crotchety Luther who who wrote those things, but for him it was always important, imperative, that the word of God, salvation through Christ alone, be there. And when people wouldn't accept that, I don't care if it was a papist or a Jew. He got after him because mm-hmm. or that a Turk, was, yeah, yeah, and 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 so he said he said some some pretty some pretty bad things about those folks, but he said the same kinds of things about the papacy, yeah, because because it infringed on this justification by by faith, uh, sola scriptura, the the word of God alone. Um, yeah, there was a context of like Jewish evangelism at the time. I think where there were there were Jewish evangelists sort of bringing people, trying to bring people out of Christianity into into Judaism, and so his concern was people were losing their salvation, and anyone who, you know, Jesus even says, you know, the the Pharisee would make you know the, their follower twice the son of hell, you know, as they are, and so again, not justifying that, but I think yeah. the, the point that the stakes for him were salvation and people bringing people out of their their salvation that they had found in right. Christ was they were they were doing a bad thing. He did also write early in life that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, which is a kind of outreach to Jews. Sure. It's really tender and loving. Uh, he wasn't as cranky yet. But um, anyway, I, I, I appreciate the words about, you know, historically, we, we have to we, we have to take kind of people as they are and in, in, you know, in the context in which we that we they we we find them we don't just get to be all historical revisionists and you know and think that we would have been any different either by the way we would have been formed by our own uh milieu um at the end of the day here's some of the let, let's just talk about maybe some of the main differences that emerge from lutheranism uh for example lutherans would hold that there are two sacraments you know baptism and the lord's supper we hold those as sacraments as where places where god works the roman catholic church still would have seven uh, yeah, so uh, I will quarrel with your understanding there a little bit. Okay, because, no, go ahead. Because some Lutherans would um, uh, would say three sacraments. Uh, yeah. Uh, but most most important to say about about Lutherans and the sacraments is, I, I think Luther would say, you know, it's a uh, it, it's an arbitrary concept. There's nothing in the Word of God about these are the mm-hmm. number of of sacraments. So it's clear that baptism and the Lord's Supper and maybe confession are, um, you mm-hmm. know, sacraments, understanding that sacrament is a, a human category, not mm-hmm. not one that's biblical. Um, so that's... What, uh, it, now, it, what would we teach our confirmation kids as the definition of a sacrament, as Lutherans understand it? Yeah. Well, uh, we would teach them... Um, as Luther would understand it, that it is is a promise of God, you know, that's connected to an earthly element, and and that it conveys grace to us. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd also teach him it's instituted by Christ Himself because there are only two, only two dominical sacraments: baptism and Lord's Supper. The other things are holy things, which is what sacra means holy mm-hmm. holy things. Those other five. For Roman Catholics are holy things too. Marriage is a holy thing, mm-hmm. but it's it's not a dominical one. Jesus never said, "Go therefore and be married." Yeah. He said, "Do this to remember me. Go baptize." Yeah. Uh, it conveys forgiveness of sins. There is a physical element in both the Lord's Supper and uh, as in water and bread and wine. Yeah, yeah, and in, in, in baptism, uh, Luther could have advocated for the third <clears throat> sacrament of a confession and absolution, but there's no. There's no uh, tangible, physical element yeah. in, involved in that. So the way we define it, it is that that's it, that, and that Jesus instituted it. Yeah, I would say too. You know, and one thing you see in all of these, you know, Wycliffe, great preacher, Hus, great preacher, and they had schools of preaching around them. Uh, Luther, great preacher, uh, and again, uh, you know, other pre- there there does seem to be wherever you find these. 
these efforts of reform, they're almost like revivals a little bit where you've got these these powerful preaching going on. And that's very, very, very different from what was going on in the church at the time where priests would give little ditties. You know, they might remember like the life of a saint or something or, you know, but there was not full exposition of the word. You know, I mean, Luther would give these, you know, 45 minute sermons and, you know, gosh, sometimes I think he gave several a week. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but three or four, three or four a week. Yeah. So, um, so that seems to be, you know, again, emerging from the Reformation, this, 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 the importance of preaching, you know, not just the sacramental process, but the preaching of the, the living word of Christ. A couple of other things that I think emerge from that, too. Uh, for me, it's important uh, to have the doctrine of two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Luther was big on, on that, the kingdom of the, of the state, the kingdom of the church, uh, the kingdom of the left hand, kingdom of the right hand. One of them bears the sword, one of them bears the gospel. That's important. Uh, the absolute value of the individual uh, was another thing, that, that God saved each person as an individual. And I think that that's one of the big things that that came out of the Reformation, the supremacy of the Word of God, uh, also coming out that it, mm-hmm. it, it, it just, if it's not there, it's not there. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was talking to my wife the other day. I said, you know, even that's that was even part of my ordination vows. That I I I I, I vow that this is the infallible Word of God for matters of faith and life. Uh, so yeah. that that's a pretty important uh, takeaway from the Reformation. And even though different, even different Lutheran traditions will disagree, perhaps about you know how to interpret the Scripture, we we should at least hold that it is the Word of God, and so we have something to to work with. Um, I think well, uh, infallible yeah. of matter and faith and life, not science or history, by the way. Yeah. Just, just just yeah, science. no, 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 it, absolutely. It's, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat the inerrant thing, but it is infallible in matters of faith and life. Yeah, no, understood, understood. Um, I mean, even within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, pastors say, you know, could disagree about some uh, yep, well, some, some, some particular issues. Yeah, some, but. some of my brothers wouldn't say what I just got through saying, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, well, any kind of, any kind of last thoughts? Um, you know, clearly the, you know, the, the, the legacy is one that, you know, we, as we'll talk about in future episodes, you know, there are these kind of Lutheran strongholds in, in what we now call Germany. Um, it, it does perpetuate. You have some Germans that end up coming over to America and, you know, the er- early 1800s and, um, you know, looking for good farmland and relief from unionism, which is where yeah. Lutherans and Calvinists were sort of forced to become one church in that part of the world. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, I'd say Luther was you know, pretty successful and that his, his sort of core idea that one, one's conscience, uh, one could be declared righteous, uh, through faith in Christ. I mean, that is an idea that has sort of stood the test of time. Uh, you know, it, it could have been so successful, in fact, that we have entered into various periods of cheap grace and taking advantage of God's grace, forgetting about God's law and God's holiness, which I don't think Luther would have ever advocated. Uh, but that may be for another day. But any anything else we, we haven't really said about Luther and his legacy and, you know. Uh, I would just uh, want to say, and this is just a, you know, a, a, a pet uh, thing of mine, so mm-hmm. you'll forgive me. But if 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 you are unfamiliar with Luther and would like to get uh, a, a, a good view of who he was, uh, I think one of the best ways to do that is to go on YouTube and find the old 1950s movie called Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't get one of the more recent ones. They tend to be kind of weird. But yeah. the one that was made back, uh, I think it was 53 or 54, mm-hmm. something like that. You have to have a tolerance, you know, for old 1950s black and white movies. But it's a, a really accurate portrayal of his life. And his personality, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I think it's uh, it, it's a great introduction to Luther if yeah. if you don't know much about his life. Yeah, of course there are billions of bi- biographies about him too. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and and they all kind of want to take a different take. You yeah. know, um, <clears throat> there's a, there's a movie called The Radicals as well on on YouTube, which 
has Wingley and some of the other Anabaptists, some of the early Anabaptists, and how they they kind of parted company and why. Because uh, Wingley ultimately is not for adult baptism, right. as an example. So he's not quite as radical as the radical reformers, as they're called. Uh, and some of that goes into total chaos and all that, which we, we'll talk about later. But yeah, but anything, any kind of parting thoughts or... My, my parting thought, uh, the church is always in need of reformation. Mm. And it, it's not just from the 16th century, even though it was most necessary then. But I think even today, we always have to have a mind that this institution that Christ gave us is always in need of reforming. Yeah. Well, um, thank you both so much for, uh, for, for joining us. Uh, uh, since both of y'all are retired, I can't send people to your churches. Uh, but uh, but actually, they they might be at First Lutheran from time to time. So so stop in and, and visit us. But Ralph, I want to thank you very much for your for your decades of service to the church and for stopping in this morning. You're welcome. Uh, and uh, Richard, same to you for your decades uh, of service and stopping thank in you. this morning. Um, and uh, to our listener, thank you for, for for hanging in there and listening to this. Hopefully, again, this is a you know uh, helpful episode in this whole season, looking at the reformers and how how really they, in many respects, formed the world that we that we live in, and, and that in many ways we we enjoy. So, thank you for listening. I'm Evan McClanahan, pastor here at First Lutheran FLHouston.org, uh, and check out HoustonTOT.com as always to learn about uh, future events and what we're up to lately and kind of who we are. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.